this is Jan Chipchase and this is the Service Design Show. Welcome. Hi everyone, my name is Mark Fontaine and welcome to a very special episode of the Service Design Show. What makes this episode special is that it's a podcast exclusive and isn't available on the YouTube channel. Just something extra for all you listeners out there who have been supporting the show since the day we started. The guest of this episode is Jan Chipchase. I've been following the work Jan has been doing for a long time and I still recall some of the great research studies he did and published during his career at Nokia. More recently, Jan has founded Studio D, which is a studio that provides international research design and strategy services. And he has published the Field Study Handbook. It's a how-to and why-to guide to running international field research. The handbook got launched via Kickstarter with a goal to reach $20,000 and eventually raised over $330,000. Check out the fieldstudyhandbook.com for more info about the book. In the next 30 minutes or so, I will be talking to Jan about the studio and the field study handbook. Welcome to the show, Jan. It's good to be here. Jan, uh, I ask this question to every guest who is on the show, and I'm also going to ask this one to you. So what is your connection with service design? And do you remember the very first time uh, you met service design? Sure. So um, uh, to answer that question, I would have to go back to the early 90s when I was a, um, just graduated with an economics degree and I was designing a piece of software at that time and I realized I had no idea about design um, and so I took a master's in what was then called user interface design mm-hmm. and that was the f- that was the first point where I started thinking about the design of objects and things and how they relate to ecosystems and services and things with many touch points. So I guess that would be the first Mm. point. Mm. And and actually at that time, uh, user interface design was a little bit ahead of its time in terms of what people were talking about. Mm. And then probably within about three, four years, it was a little behind its time. In, Mm. In other words, the language shifted to service design. Three or four years later, and nowadays and it continues to evolve. Nowadays, do you still have a connection with with service design? Uh, yes, I would say pretty much every design project that we work on is uh, in the studio hmm. um, has elements of what I would call service design. All right, um, services and experiential design hmm. from um, software on phones through to buildings that you can walk through. Hmm. It's that, that level of um, scale and expense that we're working on. Yeah. So uh, let's just move on to actually the studio. And I'll just abbreviate it to Studio D because I was reading the about and uh, it has an interesting uh, bacteria name. Maybe you can pronounce it in a minute. But uh, what does the studio do and how did you start the studio? So um, the background is I worked for almost 10 years at Nokia. Um, on a lot of the emerging markets products. Headed up the global insights practice at Frog um, Design for four years. And then I set out on my own and I decided to set up a studio. And it's a bit of an experiment. Even uh, four years ago when I started, it's still a bit of an experiment. Um, And I'm interested in um, seeing how far I can push a studio that has no employees and Mm -hmm. no fixed address. Mm -hmm. 
And so in other words, um, I have clients that reach out for work. I pull together a team. Um, nearly all of our work is international. So we set up studios in the places that we work. So we right. actually set up dozens of studios over the years. Um, and um, it turns out that small teams of between, I guess, six and 12 people can achieve a hell of a lot mm. in one or two or three months work when they're very focused and have have the right kind of space and process in place. So so the studio is really spread out across the world depending on the project you are doing. It is. And uh, we might be in New York one week. Uh, we might be in remote China another week, Saudi Arabia, Somalia. Mm. We, we specialize in um, demographics that are difficult to reach and difficult to kind of understand, whether it's a subculture in Tokyo or high-risk environment um, in Afghanistan. So um, I've been doing this for many years, um, this kind of foundational research to inform design, and um, I'm looking for things that keep me me and my team on our toes. And so it tends to be the things that other people find a bit more difficult to take on. I, I really love that stuff. And that, that's also the uh, connection with the bacteria, right? <laughs> yes, the <laughs> studio. So I've done a lot of things in the in the public eye, and um, a number of years ago, I just decided that I really wanted to be step away from mm. being in public, and mm. uh, I, re- I really enjoy mm. have, being able to kind of explore things um, mm. in a more private way. Mm. So I set up the studio. Um, it's named after an extremophilic bacteria called mm. Deinococcus radiodurans, which nobody could spell and almost <laughs> nobody can pronounce. Uh, so nobody comes across our website by accident. You either know us or you don't. Yeah. And um, I guess in the intervening years, we've published a few things and have got a slightly higher profile and mm. people call us Studio D. Studio D. I guess in fine with what yeah. what is the um, um, what would you say is the biggest lesson uh, you've learned over the four years running a studio that um, yeah that basically doesn't have a physical presence or fixed pres- physical presence? I think it's the it's a, a, a reinforcing of just how important good relationships are mm-hmm. with people and what it takes to build and maintain trust with these people who are brought into projects Mm. and they commit themselves wholeheartedly. I've had the great fortune to work with some really fantastic people over the years. Um, And it's really those relationships and what they and us as a team allow us to achieve Mm. together. Mm. Um, In other words, you don't need a corporate entity to hold things together. Yeah. Right. It's the so, connection and the relation you have with your co-workers without actually being in the same office. I can imagine that it, that does require some different skills and different factors. It it does. It, it's not that we're not in the same office. We live in different parts of the world. Yeah, so yeah. Hiring, yeah. Hiring people from where I live. Mm. Um, but uh, we travel to places and meet in places mm-hmm. and work intensively mm-hmm. um, for many weeks at a time, mm-hmm. um, sometimes in quite difficult conditions as well. So um, I, I guess it's it's how to manage those and how to manage and invest in those kind of relationships. Mm-hmm. And I haven't always got it right. Um, I'll freely admit that. But um, I, I've also 
I think we've got it. I and the people I've been working with have got it right enough that it seems to be working. Pretty well. it, <laughs> you're getting it, results. It's, it's, a, <laughs> it, it, it's certainly a sustainable model. Mm. And I had a question starting out whether the model was at all sustainable. And it, <laughs> it is sustainable. And I think you can, you can deliver work that is world class mm. off it. And that's. Mm. Um, and so if you can do that, then why do you need this other infrastructure? Yeah. And there's certainly things that I've done that have hit the boundaries of the model, hit the edges of the model. Could you give an example? Because, well, um, the, the person that I work with three years ago when I, when I felt, or four years ago, um, you know, after a number of projects, they evolve. And then, so they have different expectations of mm. what they want from the relationship. Mm. And so, and, and some of those things is they want to start their own thing and yeah it's a very healthy way to do it and so how do you within a company that's quite easy and that's quite clear you leave and you start another thing or you go to another employer within these relationships Mm. where it's more loosely defined it's a slightly different thing Mm. um, but I'm, i'm so happy to have the kind of relationships with those colleagues that they're, we're able to talk about what that evolving relationship is mm. and i'm not saying it's always easy but um um i hope it's respectful <laughs> and um uh, it, and it does seem to be sustainable mm. from a from a model point of view mm. You, you talked, um, you at least you mentioned doing uh, world-class work and i think one of the most recent examples that at least has gone public is uh, the field study handbook that you've actually published, right? Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, yes. Um, uh, what is it? Well, not, I guess not everybody knows uh, the field study handbook. Could you give a little bit of a background? Sure. So um, I published a book about six years ago and I signed on with a publisher, um, HarperCollins, and I wrote the book with a with a writer I had support writing it. Mm. And then I delivered the book and I handed it to them and a year later it was published and in total it's probably sold about 70,000 copies worldwide. Mm. Mm. And I have close to no relationship with anyone that bought it. Mm. And the financial reward was very limited, limiting. And whilst I appreciate the lessons of writing it, I didn't get as much from it as I thought. And so at that time, I realized, and that was a kind of anecdote pop science book. And at that time, I realized that there would be demand for a um, how-to book. And so back then, six years ago, I started writing a how-to book and making notes. And it took about three years of notes. And that was six years ago. And then three years ago, I committed to giving myself a deadline uh, to write it. I didn't sign on to any publisher because I didn't want... I wanted to be close to it, and I wanted to have the time to figure out what I wanted it to be. Um, and the process of writing it changed what it became. It's no longer a how-to book; it's a how-to why-to book. Mm-hmm. And I think the why-to is the, the why-to is fundamentally what makes it stand out. Um, that was so. Three years ago, I committed to writing every day, and I'm wow. wherever I was in the world, I would mm-hmm. get up often before dawn, and I would write between one and eight hours um, a day mm-hmm. working on it. And I did that for a year, and then I decided that I would want to design it myself. Mm. Um, and so that added, it was going to be a one-year project, and it became a three-year <laughs> And And, and um, you know, when you sign to a publisher, you, you're committed to deadlines. And the beautiful thing for me about this is that I've been paid many times over by 
by very selfishly devoting that much time to a single thing mm. it's very rare as a human to, mm. to be able to give that much time to a thing except for maybe a sibling or a partner um and uh, I also gave myself the, the the opportunity to design it, like over five hundred pages. Yeah, I brought together a small small team. I had um, two proofreaders and uh, a fant- absolutely fantastic illustrator called V. John Phillips. The book looks great. Yeah, illust- he's, he's done about sixty illustrations in the book, and that mm. really brought it alive. Mm. And then t- two weeks before launch, I kind of I talking with my business partner, and um, we thought why don't we Kickstarter it? And it was after conversations with a bunch of people. Yeah. I said, oh, you should Kickstarter it. And we, I wasn't really sure because I didn't really want it to be a Kickstarter product per se. Yeah. So two weeks before, kind of just called in a couple of favors. Um, Timo Arnal, um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. who was previously at Berg, who's now in London, yeah. was kind enough to do a video with, he, um, he might be a bit shy about it. He didn't spend more than a day on it. That, that was his his brief. Yeah. Um, he did a wonderful wonderful video on the Kickstarter, and we were looking for about twenty k. We we didn't didn't need the money. And what happened? But it was nice to nice nice to bring together the community, right, and see mm-hmm. what would come out. Mm-hmm. Well, before before I say what happened, I think <laughs> the brilliant thing about Kickstarter, in retrospect, and I didn't realize it going in was that it forced me to think about who the audience was. Mm. Whereas we have a standalone site, thefieldstudyhandbook.com. You can appeal to your base. You can appeal to the people that you know. We've got a great mailing list, about 2,500 people. Pre-launch, <laughs> all of that was in place. <laughs> but the Kickstarter forced me to think, how far could we push this beyond the core of service design and user experience and strategy and research? And so the, the tagline is travel anywhere, make sense of the world and make a difference. And I think that was encapsulated by Timo's video and it kind of got a bit of attention. And mm-hmm. we were after $20,000 and it raised over $330,000. Yeah. Wow. We Actually, it was 21 days. We, we didn't even do the full month. Mm-hmm. Um, and since then, we've launched on Amazon. So we've, uh-huh. we wrapped up the Kickstarter. We managed, managed to ship everything out. We have a fulfillment company. We, we actually have a yeah. separate luggage brand. Mm-hmm. We have a fulfillment right. company in place in San Francisco. And um, yeah, so, um, we just launched on Amazon and the sales are going pretty strong, although mm-hmm. it's the first month. So let's see how it, see how it pans out. So... The, the book is uh, a big success, at least if you look at the, the audience. But I want to take a moment and actually go back six years. And uh, you said that you got a feeling that the world needed uh, a how-to book and it became a why-to book. But do you do you recall that, that very first spark that you thought, uh, or, or what triggered you um, on the idea, what brought you on the idea to create a, a how-to book? Um, I think... I think so. Uh, I mean, I've been practicing doing foundational research to inform design and strategy, and these, now it's these many other things, right? From brand, mm-hmm. the advised brands and community engagement and partnership models, legal communication, whatever mm-hmm. you name it. If there's a corporate entity, we've been able to, I think, meaningfully have an impact on that corporate entity. So, um, yeah. So in that sense, I've had a lot of diverse experience, and certainly I think I had enough for a unique how-to book that that would have my own voice. Mm. Um, I think it became something far more personal and 
far richer from kind of taking a step back and because frankly if you give any room of if you have a room of 100 people and you say who would like to travel to <laughs> country or city x and we're going to try and figure a bunch of stuff out mm-hmm. um most of the hands will go up right? mm-hmm. and so uh, there's an inherent bias where people will end up doing research regardless of perhaps whether they're any good at it or mm. whether it's the right thing to do or the right method. And so I really wanted to get to the root of the why to. And I think there's another thing, which is a lot of organizations I've seen that adopt human-centered design, they assume that by adopting human-centered design, there will be a positive outcome. And I don't think there's enough questioning of intent of mm. why people are doing it both on their personal level and then from an organizational level point as well. And human-centered design can be used for good and it can be used for evil. It really oh. depends on how it's applied. So, and, and so the why to, for me, the why to is critically important if you don't have that in place. Um, you, you could be doing more harm than good. Hmm. Do you do you have a sort of uh, vision or ambition or maybe even the dream of what the impact of the book will be or... Um, yes. So I want, um, I want to step away from the corporate and consulting bullshit that is prevalent throughout the industry in terms of human centered design. And so it's a pretty frank assessment of where we are. Um, and I've tried to de buzzwordify Mm -hmm. a lot of the things that are, uh, are in there. Um, also, at the same time, I would like there to be um, people that have aligned their intent to the greater good and mm-hmm. understand the responsibility of going out in the world and affecting change for customers, for users. And, mm-hmm. um, I would like to equip them to do that in the best possible way. Mm-hmm. So, so, so we do it through the book. We have a template kit, which is available from the website as well, both a professional one and a um, a stripped down one, which we make free for education, mm. um, including customers and benevolence, by the way. Um, we run retreats. So we have the first retreat coming up in Sichuan in China in mm. September, another one in in Japan in October. And we're even running expeditions. So we're running an expedition to the Pamirs in Tajikistan and another one to Afghanistan. So it's, 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 these are all kind of, kind of tried, tied together. I guess. What, what I'm feeling, maybe I don't know if if the, yeah, you agree with that, but you're almost trying to start a movement or at least facilitate a movement. If I was someone else, I would say yes. <laughs> um, I'm 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 very wary of the term movement. I think that has to be organic. Yeah. So Aren't you at I least, would rather. Yeah. I would rather see in a couple of years' time to see what comes out of it. Yeah. I think so. So let's take an analogous, it's not an analogous, it's way more successful than the Phil Steady Handbook, but let's take a an, another um, book that's come out recently, which is Sprint. Right? Mm-hmm. So um, uh, Jake Knapp, he's done an absolutely fantastic job of putting it out there. He's condensed a lot of best practice. Um, he's really marshaled community. Uh-huh. Um, and there's a lot of excitement around it. And certainly it's valid in a few contexts, but it's also, there's significant fatigue around it. Mm. A lot of the organizations that adopt it realize that actually running the sprint is the absolute easy part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of them. 
hmm. you know, it gets people excited, but actually the hard stuff is the stuff that follows. And um, so yeah. I'm, I'm not modeling it on Sprint. I'm just using that as a reference. Yeah. But with the field study handbook, I want to, I do want to affect as many people as possible, but I want to affect them in the right way in that they're, I would rather affect, uh, be in touch with and um, work with fewer people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm and have them better aligned to what the core mission is rather than by trying to go very broad, very quickly. Mm. And so, um, so for example, we, we have a series of winter workshops that we're going to announce later this year, uh-huh. be in a couple of months. So in November, December, and January, I'll be running workshops around the world on field study methods. And that will be the kind of next touch point. And we'll probably run more retreats next year in Japan and elsewhere. So um, you, you talk a little bit about the uh, the Kickstarter project, um, but I'm if you if you could start over again, um, is there anything you would do different? Uh, no. <laughs> so seriously. Yeah, yeah, and and that is because it it uh, it grew organically and it became to what it is uh, because of the process. I, it's not, and it's not to say that mistakes weren't made, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, on it, I'd say one. Mis- we, we offered retreats, the first retreat, and we offered it, or you know, I offered it two thousand dollars. But I was thinking, like, you know, are we really going to hit a hundred thousand dollars? And then when we hit a hundred thousand dollars on the second day, um, yeah, I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to offer a retreat. That means I have to invite. 10 people somewhere interesting mm. and, and it's going to be up in the mountains. So where's that going to be? And, yep. and so we offered it at um, $2,000. It really should have been a higher price. Yeah. Um, but I'm glad that I did it. And yeah. I'm really looking, it, it had enabled a different set of people that might have otherwise come to join. And I'm, I'm very much looking forward to meeting those people. So definitely, definitely want to be a slightly higher price for a three day event uh, mm. than $2,000. Mm. So. Let's, um, yeah, we're heading towards the end of this interview already, and I always have a, a closing question for all my guests, and the same is to you. So, you know, this is your opportunity to ask the people who are listening to this episode a question. Uh, what would it be? So it's the question that I that's been constant in my life, and that is, um, if you could be based out of anywhere, where would you be based out of and why? And there's a second part to that, which is, and why aren't you there already? Um, Because Hmm. I think so much of what shapes us about designers and these other things that we are is the environment in which we're in. Hmm. And as a rule of thumb for me, that has to be somewhere that I'm inspired by. And if I'm not inspired, then... um, You have to move on. Yeah. Yeah. Jan... um, Thanks for sharing your story. It's uh, I can recommend the book uh, to everyone. I'll put the links up in the uh, description of the video. Uh, maybe I'll see you uh, in the Netherlands uh, someday, maybe uh, during a workshop or a retreat. Uh, who knows? Uh, again, thanks for making the time. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. Goodbye to the listeners too. All right, cheerio. So let's wrap up this episode. If you want to learn more about the projects we've just talked about, check out the links that are in the description. Like always, if you like the show and haven't done it already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast via iTunes or SoundCloud. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash service design show 
and our Facebook page at facebook.com slash service design show, where you'll find more content like short expert tips on service design, for example. So that was it for this episode. Thanks again for listening and I'll catch you in two weeks time with a brand new episode.